and welcome to another episode of Reproducibility. Today we're talking again about starting your PhD. Um, I'm Sophia Corell, I'm in Berlin, and I'm joined by Sam Parsons and Amy Auburn, who are in Oxford and Cambridge, respectively. Hi! <laughs> Hi! <laughs> <laughs> I just nearly said that Sam Auburn and Amy Parsons, like I could, like, I could hear my brain sort of <laughs> thinking that. God. Yeah. Um, anyway, I've got your names right, says the person with definitely the most dif- difficult uh last name of the three of us anyway so we're back to talk about starting a phd i'm i'm still the one starting the phd in in actual life and you you guys are still the people giving me and all of the other people who are starting their phd now advice in the previous episode which we ended um (laughs) because we decided that we actually had enough for one episode um and wanted some work-life balance we talked about yeah we we finished by talking about work-life balance um, and so I guess sort of one question for that still is, um, how, how much of your work, um, like how, how much of the time that you spend on the PhD was, um, was spent on sort of direct work on papers or like projects, um, or on your own education, um, and also supervising others. And so I guess specifically again, for, for the beginning of the PhD, um, Gosh. That's a hard question. Yeah. Mm. Um, so just like in as a general overview, I did, I kind of started my PhD in the first one and a half years. I read a bit of literature and I did some studies. One of them I ended up publishing, but they weren't very good. Um, and then I went abroad for half a year where I did no studies and I just learned programming and I read a lot of books about R and stats um and then I came back and then I had two very productive years where I did both job applications and papers and and work and Twitter (laughs) um so it's really hard to say like proportion wise because I think the first I always tell people like the first two years of my PhD were kind of like I would sometimes say could go down the drain, but then they were very important formative years for me where I struggled a bit into really figuring out what I was good at. And I figured out a lot of things I wasn't good at, like experiments. Um, so yeah, it's really hard to say. Um, so what you're saying is like, like what you said last week, the last time, sorry. Um, <laughs> super random. Sorry. Like you said last time, um, that progress isn't linear. Yeah. And you don't know, it it really depends on your work. You know, if you are doing big studies and you might start off, you know, collecting data in your first year and only finish in your third year and then do a bit of data analysis and write up. Well, I did secondary data analysis and other people do something completely different and some people won't collect any data whatsoever. And, and so, and we all have different training needs. And, and so I think, a really good thing to start doing very early on is stop comparing yourself to people. Because <laughs> I do that all the time and it sucks. Oh, The best way to make yourself feel not very good about yourself is to look at other people's CVs. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't do oh. it, past Amy. <laughs> 
uh yeah so so i'm i i haven't i have skillfully evaded your question um but oh, I, like Sam, no, I don't I know if if you have any better ideas i definitely don't i know that i i <laughs> I, I, I guess for for some people the setup might be kind of such that they can maybe set aside time to learn something and then maybe set aside time to do something else like the example for me would be like learning how to program stuff wasn't me learning how to program it was me just fixing the next problem using r or programming whatever task but it wasn't like like i i didn't learn r i learned how to do the next thing or fix the next problem using R as the tool. So then it kind of becomes like it's part of your work or your project thing rather than it being like setting aside so many hours to learn something, if that makes sense. So it's kind mm. of, it's, I think like the, oh. the Venn diagram of PhD activities oh, is kind of very overlapping. I think it's course, different. Oh. No, please go ahead. No, I mean, like, I mean, like, I think, I think this will still end up the same thing. So, um, um, but of course, I mean, so sure you learn by doing, but I mean, we talked about education in the last episode as well. Um, and like, did you, like, how, how did you learn things? Like how, like learn, learn new things during your PhD? Like, did you have formal training or did you really all do, did you do, do, do Sorry, did you do it all by yourself? And so, like, how did you do that? And what did you do? Yeah, I think like any any place or time, like people learn differently. And and we are both came from the British system where naturally there's very little formal training. You know, if we were American PhD students, our story would probably be different. Um, but I think it's also personal preference. So I literally dropped everything for half a year and learned things from the ground up, deinstalled SPSS and just tried to figure things out. And sometimes finding a mean in R took me half a day. Um, but it was, but that's kind of how I do things. I, I really, I'm a person who kind of drops everything, starts a new project, completes that project, then starts every, something else. And I, I find it very hard to kind of learn on the go, um, except if I'm kind of experimenting. Uh, so for me, it was a lot of person, you know, either fa finding training opportunities, but often finding a problem, I can only solve it by learning X and then dropping everything and reading books about X till I understand or working together with somebody who knows X. Um, but I do know that other people work a lot better by integrating that more into their daily activities. It especially then seems less disruptive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sam, how's your experience on that? On education during the PhD? I, yeah, so my, mine was similar in that I, there weren't really many formal courses. Like there might be a talk essentially on some method, but that's not learning how to do some method or some analysis. Um, so I, yeah, pretty much just learned as I went. I kind of, I, I'm trying to set aside more time now to do kind of what Amy described there. Like I, I'd love to just not do anything but like fully go through statistical rethinking for example and just spend time where that's all that i'm doing to sort of really understand things um but i'm also supervising students and doing other stuff so it's kind of harder to 
break away for like a long period of time. Um, but that's, that's part, that's another, it's like work, work balance mm. is also, <laughs> <laughs> um, is also difficult sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think another thing, if we talk about kind of juggling work and education is that you are at the same time educating others as well. Uh, and I did a lot of teaching as well at times, especially in the later years, my PhD. But I think education, again, we, we talked about this in the last episode. It's really finding what you need to know and then executing <laughs> and learning what you need to know. And it often means kind of trying to figure out how can I learn this? Is that do you want to learn it by working with somebody who knows how to do it? Then, then find that person and, and work and try to see whether they want to work with you or can recommend someone. Do you want to learn it? You know, I always find I never learned it just by going to a lecture or even going to a week long course. Learning is a lot longer process and, and I learned best with, with a book in hand and really going through it page by page. And it does take long, but I always feel like it, the investment has always paid off in the long term to, to really understand something. Yeah. Um, so it's, again, it's, it's kind of an investment, a long-term investment. And like a lot of your PhD is it's, you know, investing in things you think will pay off in, in a larger scale uh, further down the line and, and feeling confident to take those kind of risky decisions. And, and because only in that way will you come out and, and, you know, maybe have learned the skills necessary to to do really cool work in the future. Yeah. And I guess it, it kind of comes back to what we talked about last time um, in terms of the PhD as being a, a skills development and acquisition kind of period. Like if you stay in academia, the PhD is the time that you have the most time by a long, long margin to be able to invest the time in developing skills and expertise. Um, like I, I'm, I'm only a year into this postdoc, but even then I've kind of seen a huge difference in the amount of time I've been able to just even just sit down and read a couple of papers in a row it can be really difficult sometimes. Um, whereas especially during the first year of my PhD, I could spend a week reading papers. I could do like a full online course without taking any breaks whereas now that's much harder um so if you kind of have the idea that you maybe need to learn a method really investing that time during the phd which is exactly what it should be is kind of i think what people should do <laughs> yeah. yes um okay so that's so, so that's about sort of yeah education and training that you kind of find yourself or that you do in formal or informal ways. But then of course, um, so this was mentioned last time as well. Um, so this idea as the PhD as an apprenticeship. So that includes, you know, focusing on training, but, but apprentices of course, always also have people that guide them. Um, and so like we, it's like, it's the same for PhD students, uh, supervisors. Mm. Um, so I guess like, yeah, what, what were your experiences with being supervised as a PhD student? I think, yeah, <laughs> supervision. <laughs> um, 
I mean, if yeah, if 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 we wanted to be, if you wanted to be less personal, like kind of, yeah, maybe, no, maybe, what, yeah, okay. Well, I I think I think the important thing there is that for me, and I think this is very different for different people, but because that more or less, I feel like supervision was a lot more than just my main supervisor, and it was creating this network of support which really helped me in the end. And that ranges from your main supervisor to kind of secondary or tertiary supervisors that help you on, on the job to people, peers that can help you, um, to mentors that can guide you. And I think all four of these for me were really important. And I think I never underestimated the importance of people and peers around you to to guide you and if you have a small programming mishap or you just need to find this paper or you're looking for this this idea um so i think supervision is a lot more than the supervisor but if you get the supervisor wrong you know it's very difficult to make up with the others because it's such an intricate net um so yeah i think that's my first point and then the second is is build that network of support that you need. You know, if your supervisor isn't that great, you can make up for it. It does take a bit of time, but you can make up for it by by building a stronger network of of peers, other people in supervisory capacity and mentors. And a lot of that is asking for help um, and being willing to ask for help and not feeling like it makes you look stupid. Um, and, and having that confidence and it is really hard to do, but I feel like that was something that when I really didn't know what to do anymore, just going to people and saying, like, I just don't know, like I have this, I have these skills. What should I do? What can I do really helped? Or if I, if I got into disagreement with a, a main supervisor, uh, so building those personal relationships with people, I felt was really important. Um, on the supervisor themselves, I think looking back, and I guess this is, you know, this is advice to pre-PhD students, uh, is to really look at what people do when they leave the lab of the supervisor. You know, do they go on and do they have great academic careers? Do they do they stay in academia? Do they are they successful? You know, maybe do they do those that have left speak positively about their time there? I would now spend a lot more time thinking about that than thinking about how prestigious the the lab group is or or something similar. So it's definitely the the supervisor that's important there. Um yeah, I don't know, Sam, how do you feel? I feel like I've now been rambling about three very separate points. Um, no, I I kind of agree with with your. I think you put it a lot better than I would about trying to make like having a supervision team rather than a supervisor is really important. So like, um, I very early on had a, a secondary supervisor who was also a postdoc in my lab, um, who kind of very much became and to a certain extent still is my kind of stats programmy sort of mentor go-to person um and i think that's kind of what you need is as as amy said is kind of people that you can go to for different things um particularly as if if you work with someone that's either uh eminent or 
more senior PI or anything like that, they're going to be busy people. Um, so I guess a slight add-on is kind of knowing, knowing and getting to grips with as early as possible the the time and the kind of investment that other people can pay in you is really worthwhile and kind of the particular i guess not only skills and expertise but uh like drive different people can kind of bring to like your project on your own development is really important so so how does it work in the uk so you only have one official supervisor yeah, you have a co-supervisor as well often. Mm. So you often have two. You've got a main one and then you've got uh, a secondary supervisor. Uh, but it is very singular, really, uh, in comparison to places like the US where you have full-on committees. Um, yeah, I, I have a – so here in Berlin, I've got um, – I've, like, officially, like, three three supervisors. Like, it's a proper team. Like, and everyone has that. Mm. Everyone has to have three supervisors, I think. Oh, I like that. Or at least two. I'm not sure. But yeah, you mostly put three on there. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of baked into the system that you, you have different people for different things, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's what, something I didn't really realize at the beginning of my PhD is that, you know, you're, while you're a supervisor, at least in the UK, I started and it was like, you know, this was the per this was the sun in my solar system, you know, I was orbiting around. Um, but that it's a lot more about building the network of exactly those people that you need to succeed. And that does take time. And that takes, you know, really, so for some people I really wanted to work with, that meant persistence, <laughs> <laughs> you know, keeping on trying to show that that you can bring something to their work. Um, while for others it's it's kind of instant and you instantly gel or for others, you need situations that you go in and all of a sudden you you see that. Or you go to conferences and you meet people. So it takes time. And, and so at the beginning of your PhD, whether you already have three supervisors or four or just one or two, you are very much dependent on those. But yes, supervisors are really hard to get right. And, and everybody will go through kind of good days and bad days. But I think what I crucially find important is that you have you have the power, except, you know, we need to caveat here that some supervisors can just be very horrible people. And and then this, you know, me saying, oh, yes, you can just walk away and try to figure out your own network doesn't apply. But if you have kind of a non, you know, evil supervisor, um, there, there are it's a lot about you, again, figuring out what you need to learn, what support you need and finding those people because people will want to work with you. You have skills, you have time to invest. Uh, and it's finding finding your your crowd, finding that team. And, it's, and those are teams and friends and colleagues you'll work with, you know, further on from the PhD, um, going further. Uh, and I feel like peers for me, were almost as important sometimes as as people who are above me uh, to ask for advice, ask for help, and to learn from. So community is key. <laughs> you, you have a cool word. Community, yeah. reproducibility. Community. And, oh and um, <laughs> this reminds me a lot of our episode about the open science community. 
Mm. You know, and we were talking about how this community feel is key. And a lot of this peer community, I feel like for me, came through open science. You know, um, I think I found my footing in that network was hugely accelerated because all of a sudden I knew what my cause was. I knew what I wanted to do. And there were other people who felt just as passionate as I did at various levels of the academic hierarchy. So open science helps, <laughs> at <laughs> least in, in my opinion, even though it, it did, I did have some very uh, strong disagreements with my actual supervisor on, on that terms, but we, we still, we, we still speak of very good terms to each other, but that was one thing we, we felt very differently. But I think that's the time when I started seeking other people to, to help me along and maybe I was lucky that my supervisor was, uh, yeah, very amenable. <laughs> yeah, I think he just liked having less work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think Sam probably Open Science kind of built your network as well. At oh the yeah, beginning. probably more than more than anything else. Um, I think partly because we're sounding like a cult. We are a little bit. I feel like we need to kind of say like a disclaimer, like not a cult. Join <laughs> <laughs> <Don't> the <be> cult. <laughs> like, <laughs> open science. Yes. The the good thing about academia in general is that you can ask people for help. And I think more often than not, they'll give you some input or help. So like I've I've sent just cold emails to plenty of people about like clarifying something in the paper or how did you do this or someone said that you might have code to do this and they've been really helpful but the open science community like doubles down on that really nicely so like, you you fire out a random question on twitter and then within half an hour you've got kind of four answers and three papers to read through and that in itself is really powerful because it's it's not only community building it's kind of capacity building as well um and that's what you need sometimes is you, you need an answer. You need somewhere to look. And the open science community is by far the community in my experience that's going to be the most helpful, usually the quickest and the most rigorously. <laughs> um, nice. Hmm. Cool. I mean, do you have anything else to, to say in the... About I mean, supervisors. Yeah, we we've kind of we kind of moved away from supervisors. Like, like, I, I community guess is important. On, right? on like the the point of supervisory teams, I guess a general point is to try and understand what the landscape of supervisor teams kind of is within your country and institution. Um, so we kind of talked about how in the UK it's kind of common to have like a lead supervisor and then maybe a co-supervisor, a supervisory team. Um, and I've, I've seen people that have had kind of two co-supervisors and without somebody to lead that supervision, it sort of didn't work very well um, without going into huge amounts of details. And I think a large part of that was because both supervisors sort of had the fallback of sort of thinking that they weren't the person that was in charge of supervising and mentoring this PhD student. Um, and that can create problems as well. Um, I guess that's going to be very different, for example, in like your situation, Sophia, where you kind mm. of, you have this three supervisor thing baked into the system. But even then, knowing that that's the system and, I don't know, for example, needing needing to meet all of them at once and have all of them approve something is also something that you should know 
if that's going to be necessary and know that as early as possible? Well, I think like, you know, we could have massive rants about choosing supervisors, but this is about helping PhD students who've already started. So I will not, I will not have that. But I think um, the one thing about supervisors that, that I think it's also important is to know your supervisor's motivations and use them for your benefit. (laughs) So, so try to figure out from the very beginning, what motivates your supervisor? Is that papers? Is that grants? Is that prestige? Is that, you know, finding out the truth? You know, you're lucky. Uh, Is, is that something else? Is that just, you know, having you succeed? What, what is really what motivates them? And then how can you make your motivation seem like they benefit their motivations? So for example, uh, just completely hypothetically, you might have a supervisor who doesn't actually care about reproducibility in open science, but cares about being published in high impact journals. So you might be able to then start making a case that journals like Psych Science or, or others now really do ask for, for example, why did you not pre-register? You need to say what, that you pre-registered or, or, or explain why you haven't. They want pretty graphics, which means you kind of should learn R because you can make those in R, you know, you can make them interactive, which is even cooler. Uh, And instead of kind of saying, oh, this is all good for reproducibility, you could say, oh, that's really good because it gets me into these high impact papers, uh, journals. Um, So I think it's knowing the motivations and and really using them for your benefit um, is really good. I think the other one is if you can, is try to make the supervisor, I think this depends on your supervisor, but for me, it was always very helpful. Uh, If I knew, for example, that a study that the supervisor wanted to run was not very good is instead of saying it's not very good and we shouldn't run it, I tried to deliver so much little pieces of evidence that the supervisor themselves came up with the idea that we actually shouldn't run it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's always better if they come up with the idea and you're like, oh, that's a really, actually, that's a really good idea. It's not like I thought about that before. (laughs) But maybe that's just, um, but yeah, I think the main point is the motivations and really thinking about, you know, if they don't gel with yours, there are ways to bridge those by selling certain things you want to do in a different light uh, to your supervisor than you would maybe sell them to yourself. Right. <laughs> That's quite, yeah, sorry. <laughs> this is, I've, I've, been, I've been quite creepy in the last two episodes, so I hope that I'm not creeping people out again. <laughs> no, 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 I love it. But it's like, that was quite the uh, sort of uh, statement. Like, it's like manage, yeah. manage the supervisor, basically. Um, like come on it is it is a managing relationship like you know like i i think in my time there were a lot of studies i thought were pretty crappy which i couldn't say were pretty crappy but you could kind of make them realize that they're pretty crappy pretty Mm. quickly um or but i think it's also it's just managing a relationship uh, as well and a lot of that is not going in for the you're wrong (laughs) and here is why but kind of trying to find that middle ground of you know how what is what is the thing that drives them and and how how can we make this work you know we're two different people uh but in the end we both want to be happy happy with what we're doing and at least for me a lot of that is down down to matching motivations and and making sure everybody's happy yeah okay nice 
Um, let's take a quick break, maybe uh, now. I'm, I'm managing this episode. A two-week-long break? <laughs> <laughs> no, this time it's a genuine small break and we will be back after a normal short break, I promise. <laughs> you are listening to Reputability, serving you discussions of important issues in science and psychology one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? Give us a follow on Twitter at reproducibility. Rate us on iTunes and tell other early career researchers about us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over the next weeks, we will also release some special tea flavors, which are small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back. We have actually taken a normal break, so we will continue. Um, so yeah, so we just talked about education and uh, and supervision, um, and I guess sort of like completely different topic, but of course still um, related to things that are interesting to people who are starting their PhD. What do you think is the hardest stage of the PhD? So is it uh, is it the beginning? Um, is it the end? Is it the somewhere in between like what what is the hardest point or what was the hardest point for you i think it, it depends a little bit and i know we're always going to say it depends um a little bit on how how you approach the phd so if if you think about it in just the terms of the phd project and you're not kind of taking external things into account um then the hardest bit for me was probably around about the middle because it was kind of trying to do everything at once. You're sort of, you're trying to write, write up the stuff that you did in the first couple of years while also running data collection, while also trying to sort of plan a timeline for finishing. Um, it's kind of the point for me, at least where everything kind of, you sort of had to deal with everything. Um, so in terms of just that, that was probably the hardest. Um, what makes any part, any stage of the PhD a lot harder is when you do have the external influences as well. So applying for jobs, um, for me, writing a grant application, um, because that was two and a half, three months where I did very, very little kind of PhD work and was actually essentially firing a long shot, uh, possibly having a job, possibly in more than a year's time. Um, so there's kind of, I think it depends where you look at in the PhD in terms of what's the hardest. Um, for me, it's when things pile on, when you have a lot of things to deal with at once. If it's If your only goal is to run a study, then I could cope with that kind of all the time. But when you have lots of competing kind of objectives, it becomes difficult. It's interesting because for me, I think amount of work never really made something better or worse. I think there are two stages of kind of struggle. I think I struggled a lot at the beginning because I hate moves. I am new people, new environment, the feeling like 
you just have to know what you're doing straight away and and everybody else kind of is already producing x y and z and and you're not doing anything really i think i really struggled um also because you're in a new environment often in a new city you don't have a social network to support you which is something that i really need as well um i think my first year in general of the phd i feel like was the most challenging year personally in my whole education kind of from undergrad up to graduating from my phd from kind of a personal level a struggle with myself and and with kind of being an adult in a new place which means you're not going to you know snap your fingers and make friends for life you're not going to um you know feel instantly at home it's more of a process and and again this being kind to yourself that that it is not going to be instant uh, it's something I really struggled with. I think I'm a lot better now having moved again, kind of as a proper adult. Um, <laughs> but maybe that's something for another episode. Um, mm-hmm. I think <laughs> academically, Sophia knows our episode schedule. Yeah. So I think that was personally really hard. Um, I think the academic side where it was hard for me was in the middle because I think that was when I started actually understanding the field well enough to see that my work wasn't very good, that nobody was going to read it, that, um, it, like, I don't even trust it myself. Um, and that I don't have the skills to, I didn't know how to get to where I would be producing work that I really wanted to do. Um, at that time I was thinking of, of leaving academia. So I think, I think that often for me, at least happened halfway because you're in it long enough to start realizing where things break down and where people just gloss over. And the question is, you know, can you gloss over that nothing's reproducible or that your measurement is crap or, you know, and, and, and I think that that causes a, a different sort of mental struggle, um, plus you're, you're halfway through and, and you really do reflect on what you've done. And I think oftentimes you've not done what you really wanted to do. You're not where you want to be. Um, and I think that for me was a real mid PhD slump. Um, yeah, a, a slump, which I really only got out of when I, when I left Oxford for, for quite a bit of time. And I actually wrote about that at some point. If anybody ever still uses Medium, I actually wrote a blog post, which was like the best thing I did in my PhD was leave Oxford or something like that. Um, (laughs) Oh, I bet they loved that. (laughs) I'm just actually going to look it up because uh, I don't remember what I wrote. I'm going to start posting links to it around the department. Either way, we will. Um, here, yeah, why why leaving Oxford for a summer was the best decision of my PhD? Nice. And six different things. Connect with people, work with people, learn the skills of your trade, ask challenging questions, aim high, find a topic you cannot get. Oh my God, I was so cheesy. I hope nobody <laughs> ever reads this ever. Well, we will link to oh, it. Oh, oh, everyone will read them. oh, why did I, I even mean, say this? this? Oh my this God, it really starts nice off with... with doing a PhD is a choice of 
of passion, not a choice of reason. I still vividly remember the time when a jaded third year PhD student first showed me around my Oxford apartment. The bathrooms on the ground floor are the perfect place to cry once you hit the wall and start hating your PhD, she said. Looking at the bath- battered bathroom door just a stone throw away from the department reception, I felt a mixture of worry and wonder. <laughs> Oh, I, I was writing really well back then. <laughs> I mean, I love it. Anyways. Um, like, so you're like, like you're writing fan fiction for your own life. But I mean, uh, so this, really this is a really nice, nice topic. And so like, right. So like getting yourself out of PhD crises like this. Yeah. And so real one thing is to, to run away and not be the jaded third year PhD student who, who showed you around the, the office. Yeah. But, I mean, of course, you can't always do that, right? So, like, what do you do when things get tough? Yeah, I guess, as I said in this piece, it was. Oh my God, I'm just looking at it. And it's like, it's quite hilariously cringe. But um, yeah, like, I for me, leaving my institution was really helpful for kind of if it's only for two months or three months or six months. Um, one. I think it was the reset I needed halfway through because I I needed to redefine my goals. I needed to redefine my work. I needed to learn these skills that, that I knew I kind of had to, but I felt like I never had the time. Um, and I think going away for me was the best way to do that. <clears throat> so I often tell people who are kind of further along in their PhD and, and having that mid-PhD slump, or whenever that is, is, you know, you don't have, you know, you're not bound to the place where you're doing your PhD. You can, you know, naturally this is all funding dependent and it maybe was a point of privilege that I had the funding available to leave, but there is a lot of little pots of money around. Um, and you can get by on quite little if, if necessary. And I, I did feel like for me, it was it was a reset um, because you start at a completely new place and and you kind of feel a bit removed from the work that you've been doing and you can reconsider things. And I I feel like I'm quite I'm actually quite proud of myself that at that time I I felt the confidence to just reset fully and and say actually I want to do something completely different. Uh, because I now know what I can do and what I'm just not very good at doing. And I don't want to do what I'm not good at doing. Um, so yeah, but I, I think people like do it in different ways. Yeah. But for me, it was leaving. Uh, maybe I'm just avoid conflict. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that would be how I dealt with that mid PhD slump. Mm. Um, I guess the, the thing that I find difficult with these I guess, mini crises, uh, the times that I find hardest are when, uh, kind of when there's just, there's a lot of things pulling you in different directions and there's a lot of kind of competing, uh, competing things that you have to be involved in or complete, especially when there's a couple of competing deadlines. Um, partly because in some ways, at least for some things, the only way to kind of push through it is to actually complete the work that's stressing you out in the first place. Um, so I think what, what always kind of helps me is I guess letting myself kind of know that it's okay to be stressed out, but then also kind of 
letting myself and better prioritizing, just knowing that I can and it's okay to put one thing off and deal with it in a month's time and not have that kind of competing pressure. Um, obviously for some things it's a lot more difficult than others, but it's kind of, it's, it's okay to not try and do everything at once. And I think sometimes I need to remind myself of that, but when I do, it kind of helps get over the, the more stressful times. And it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. No. As well. Aww. A little mental health uh, mm. message as well. Yeah. Subliminal mental health <laughs> message. Complete. <laughs> it's okay not to be okay. Well, I'd also kind of add, like, it, sound, it sounds a bit stupid, but there's kind of power in being a bit apathetic about certain things. Like, if you choose not to care about having something perfect then you allow yourself that slightly lower bar that you can actually achieve in half the amount of time. Um, so whether it's something basic like finishing off a draft and giving it to someone else to give you feedback rather than spending an extra two weeks on it to get everything perfect, like there's quite a bit of power in kind of saying, do you know what, this is good enough for now. Um, sort of both fighting the imposter and the procrastinator. Yeah, exactly. Um and sort of, again, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, I guess. Yeah, that's a good ending, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a funny, exactly. So it's okay not to be okay, and don't let the, let, let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We've ended on, <laughs> on two cheesy notes. Um, but I think, yeah, I agree. It's a good, good point to end. Well, I mean, thank you to both again for your great advice for people starting out with their PhD. Um, and, and please yeah. tell us yours over Twitter because oh. I feel kind of uncomfortable because we're just two people just talking about ourselves <laughs> now for the last two episodes. So please, please yeah. tell us other things. Tell us how you feel. Tell us how you're feeling starting off your PhD. Like, yeah, please don't let us just be <laughs> us two talking for uh, yeah, and also two if if you want to share those things uh, anonymously, um, you can DM us um, yeah. or email us. Yeah, yeah, please do that. Right, because it would be nice. It would be nice to share different different views, uh, also from different fields and so on. Yeah, we can share that in in another episode. Awesome. Then. Nice, perfect. Okay, well, see you next time. Bye. Bye.